All right. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Fetch It Podcast. I'm here with my fearless leader and co-host, Yonatan Waxman. How are we doing today, Yoni? What up, what up, what up, guys? How you doing? How you doing? So we had an outstanding guest today. We had Jeff Smith. And so Jeff Smith, he is somebody that's within the sub two community. And so if you uh, are on social media, but apparently living under a rock, sub two community is with uh, Pace Morby. And Pace Morby's big thing is he is the creative finance king. And so anybody that's been interested in creative financing, interested in subject to seller financing, any of those things, we get into those, we touch on them. And he goes into a pretty deep dive with examples on how subject two works. And then on top of that, we got dug into another big subject, which was um, land development. And so land development is something that, you know, seems kind of like this far away unicorn thing that a lot of people would think was interesting, but don't really know how to get into it because there's not that much, you know, information out there on it. And so if you want to learn more about it, stick around towards the end of the podcast. That's where Jeff really starts to dig into it. And then something that Jeff was phenomenal all throughout the podcast with is just his ability to articulate very complex things in a very easy to understand and digest uh, little nugget. And he's phenomenal at selling ideas and selling product, which is, you know, something that he said he was never really that good with. He said that whenever he first started his first cold call, he was shake his hands were shaking before he made the first call. And now he's one of the people that teaches people how to negotiate with sellers within the sub two community. So he is an absolute killer, absolute rock star. Yoni, I've been talking a lot. What do you think? <laughs> well, for people, number one, for people that that's that say to themselves, I have to save up money to buy real estate this is an episode for you because he will teach you how to creatively engineer a contract with a seller without having to put much or if any money down and he breaks it down into teeny tiny parts okay that that that's very important the other thing is he wasn't a closer and now he's one of the best closers and he will literally he he pulls out lines that he uses when uh, for example if a seller if a seller goes well i'm not i'm not in a rush to sell he literally has a line for everything so for the people that are saving up until they buy or interest rates go lower until they buy or any sort of these other things you tell yourselves this episode is for you and you should definitely reach out to jeff because his ig handle is at the end i agree i think i could not have said it better myself i'd say uh let's bring him in awesome welcome back to the fetch it podcast I'm your co-host, uh, Jonathan Waxman, along with David Rosenbeck. We have a uh, amazing guest for everybody today from the Sub2 community. We have Jeff Smith. How are you, Jeff? I'm doing great. It's so cool to be hang- here and hanging out with you guys. Thanks for inviting me. Cool. So, Jeff, where are you, uh, where are you calling in from? So, I'm based in Houston, Texas, and uh, specifically, I live in one of the suburbs to the north called Spring. Okay. That's awesome. Um, so a little bit, uh, let's talk a little bit about how we met and maybe your origin in, in real estate. Yeah. So, um, uh, I'm, I'm one of the leaders in, in the sub two community, just pace Morby's program, creative finance, which we'll touch on a little bit later. And, um, I've been in, in the group for a little North of two years. So I've made a few connections along the way. So we got introduced, uh, we have a mutual friend, Justin Birch and, um, uh, Justin has invited me to talk a little bit about different aspects of land a few times, and then even a little bit about kind of sales and things. And he told me a little bit about what you guys were doing. And we kind of put our heads together one time and be like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we were all sitting together on a Zoom and I'm just ripping through calls based on y'all's list and like, let's treat this as an office. Let's not make this some crazy Q&A where I'm getting stopped all the time. Let me just tear through this and let's see what we can do. So uh, that's how you and I met. We did that last Friday. It it was a lot of fun. Uh, I think a lot of people enjoyed it. Um, Not just hearing the call, but kind of seeing how you were looking at opportunities, like why you were selecting them. And so obviously we'll, we'll try and do that again in the future, but that was a lot of fun. Yeah. So just for the audience that that's not familiar, didn't see that video, they can find it on the YouTube channel, the uh, Fetch It X Sub 2 deal dialing, where you led, uh, Jeff, you led a group of, I want to say 25 to 30 people 
on the Fetch It platform, calling properties, negotiating with agents. And it was really remarkable. And it gave a lot of people confidence in that group setting that they can do it also. You basically giving a live masterclass. Yeah, that was that was fun. It's, it, it's funny you say that, like, give people confidence they can do it too. And the reason I say that is I, I've gotten graciously a decent reputation. Like Jeff can get on the phone and close people and talk to agents and he's not bothered by this. And when I first joined sub two, they were doing what they called their closer competition. It was like this big role play term, like, you know, 40 people and they're, you know, just role playing and they're getting graded and judged on this. And I remember entering sub two and it was like the last day. It was like the finals. And I'm listening to this one particular guy do role play and, and he's negotiating with this foreclosure league, whatever the heck it was. And I remember sitting there thinking, there's no way I'll be, ever be that good. There's no way I'll be able to learn this skill, talk this confidently. None of, like, I'll get okay, but not at that height. And I was hanging out with this guy like three weeks ago, grabbing a beer. And, and he was complimenting me on like how far I've progressed. And now I'm, I'm help coaching other people in sales skills. So anyway, if anybody's watching and you're kind of in the same mindset, like I'll never, it's like, it is absolutely a skill that can be learned. Like some people are more talented and they got a head start and fair enough, but it, it doesn't mean you cannot learn it over time and get really good. Like when I first started calling, I was literally shaking. <laughs> like I would put down the dialer, like I was calling foreclosure. I was literally shaking. Uh, but, but even that goes away over time with experience and and working hard and getting better at it. That's very interesting. So, you know, we were talking about origin story. So me, I was just naturally expecting that you probably had some, you know, sales background or something like that. What was life like prior to any sort of real estate? And then how did you kind of jump into that world? Yeah. So I, I went to school for engineering. I went to okay. Clemson University in South Carolina, um, stuck around for a master's degree because I really liked watching football and, you know, what the heck. <laughs> So got in a couple more seasons, but then it was 2008 where the financial crisis is starting to happen. And so I get my foot in the door at the very last second with an oil and gas construction contractor based in, in Houston. I remember you know, I grew up in Virginia, went to South Carolina. I was like, man, that was, that was already a big move going out to Texas. Like who does that? That's crazy far away. That's just nuts. Right? Well, it, it was a really good opportunity and I decided to, to jump into it. And they had this rotational program where you, you travel around and experience different sites. So I was getting this mixture of experiences, which is really, really cool. And I eventually find my way over um, to the Middle East. And I'm working in Saudi Arabia for about three years on a project over there. Now, I get to, I get to take breaks and I go travel in Europe. And that was awesome. But that's where I'm at, um, which is I would tell people like it's <laughs> it's a very different world. I really love the work living over there is incredibly hard. Mm. It is incredibly hard to live there. Love the work. The project was great, but man, living there was tough. So anyway, I get, yeah. So I, I get Israel back over here, Israel over here. Exactly. Exactly. And so I'm, I'm actually like, I'm coming back and now I'm actually very familiar with kind of more of the way people think and kind of the, the interactions over there and, um, so when I see stuff on the news, I'm like, hey, I, I get that. Like, I know the people over there and what this all what this means. So anyway, to come back and, you know, the benefit is when you're doing this is you you make a lot of money over there because that's the only way they can get you to go over there and work in the first <laughs> place. So I come back and I'm like, what is a side hustle potentially I could do to start adding streams of income? Because I'm at my W-2 and then that's cool and everything, but I feel like there's more capacity. So I, I dabble in a few things, eventually come across rentals, really. And so, you know, try my hand. I buy a couple of fourplexes. We do a fix and flip. We do a wrap. I do a passive investment, multifamily. Um, and, and that's kind of how this all got kicked off. Interesting. Okay. So what, what was the very first deal? I mean, everybody likes to hear the very first deal. What was that for you? Yeah, the the first deal was uh, a pair of fourplexes. Actually, mm -hmm. uh, they were in um, Bryan College Station, which is where Texas A and M is. Oh, okay. Not not in the best part of town, but property manager was really good. Bought those two, and um, th that was the first deal. That's excellent. 
So um, then, you know, you you bought some, you know, long-term rentals. And then uh, from what I understand, whenever you and Yonatan were talking, that you made the transition into short-term rentals. And so what, where did, where was that turning point for you? So I, I, did, I wouldn't say I re- never really made a full transition into pursuing that. What happened was, is, you know, the, the Airbnb model was starting to become more popular. And I'm also now plugged into sub two. I've just made progress along my real estate journey. And a wholesaler brought to our attention this guy who had a newly constructed house by LGI Homes. Beautiful. Throws in his down payment, gets one month deep into this, and he goes, this isn't going to work. Payments are too high. I I need to get the hell out of this thing like right now which is great. There are some people out there who see the writing on the wall and they don't mess around and they, they just go, right? As opposed to letting this drag on the foreclosure and then it just it's worse for everybody. So he doesn't do that. He's like, I need to get out of here. So w- we run the numbers and because it's a new build community, there are not sufficient rent comps really to justify. I mean, we, maybe we break even at best, but there's not enough because the, the neighborhood's now growing. It's literally being built, still being built. Mm-hmm. And we we look at AirDNA and we go, holy crap. Like if we do an Airbnb setup, we stand to make a ton of money in this particular area. Again, probably because there are no rentals right now. There's nothing else available. So we say, okay. So we take it down sub two, pay the wholesaler a little bit of money, and we put in the money to furnish it and start running the Airbnb there. And we also realize whenever you do like your first transaction on anything, it's always going to be a little bit of a crapshoot. Like the people who come in, I did my first deal and made this ungodly amount of money and it was awesome. I was like, yeah, that's survivorship bias at its height. Most people (laughs) are going to have a a, a difficult first deal. They're not going to make as much money, but you're going to learn a ton. And that's just the price of education, really. Like the school of hard knocks and it pays out amazingly. So we, we we take this deal down um, and honestly, actually, we we broke even on it. Like it was just it was just the learning, but it, it all worked out, right? We didn't lose anything. Everybody's getting paid. Everybody's getting handled. And then, of course, the market takes a turn, and that's like ah crap. Okay, so we we kind of learn how to operate this. And actually, recently, about two weeks ago, we actually put in a long term renter who wanted a fully furnished house, and he couldn't find it. And he has, you know, kid and his girlfriend and stuff. So they've just moved in and they're paying the amount where we're actually cash flowing um, a little bit, a little bit higher because he had, he just has some more income from his job and that's what he needed. That's phenomenal. So yeah, tons, tons to unpack there. So the, the biggest question mark for a lot of people I'm assuming is going to be, oh, I took it down sub two. And so for people that aren't super familiar with subject to not super familiar with Pace Morby and kind of like his methods, can you just kind of give us a high level overview of what subject to is kind of a, an introduction to creative financing and then how that helped this um, particular seller in his uh, situation? Right. So really the the way to look at real estate or any other transaction, like the property is obviously important, but the financial aspect of it is is really top notch. Okay. And what I mean by that is, Hey, we're going to institute a loan. We're going to institute something. So I don't have to drop 300 grand in cash here. Right. And you got to make this balancing act happen. So when we talk creative financing, it's kind of this overarching term that includes transaction methods like subject to, which I'm going to talk about seller financing, where they're taking a lien position, or even seller carry, where they are fully the new bank. Okay, That is the overarching of what it means. And you can use multiple tools at once to make hybrid deals. And that's where things get really creative. So if you and I, Dave, were doing a deal, maybe you need a little cash in your pocket. Maybe you have a mortgage already in place. I'm going to start making payments on that. We'll talk a bit in a second what that means. And maybe there's even another lien position because you don't want to lose your equity. And I'm going to make payments on that over time. And I know that everybody, some people who don't know any of this are like, what the hell did Jeff just say? So let's (laughs) break this down step by step. So cash transactions, simple. You get money. I, I bring you a suitcase full of cash. We're done here. The cash is obviously coming from Hard money lenders, it can come from conventional loans, something like that. But whatever the case is, David, you you are done. 
your loan is paid off. You know, we're done here. Okay. Now here's the scenario of what subject to means. Let's say, David, you have this house and you have your mortgage on it. And here's the deal. I will take title of your house, but what we're going to do now is I'm going to leave the loan where it is. Remember, there's two documents on any property. There is the title and there is the note, the note being the loan and who is funding this thing. David has the title. He is the ownership. Bank of America doesn't get a vote in how he handles it, right? They just are the loan. So, David, I will take title. That will come to me. But we're going to leave the mortgage exactly what it is. We're not changing a thing. Your name's on it. Your interest rate's on it. Your payment, interest, all the things is staying exactly the same. You got 20 years left on it. It's Nothing has changed. The difference is who is paying for it? Who is making the payment? Yes, yeah. I'm going to now make the payment. So this is what I am taking title of the property subject to the existing mortgage or loans or liens or whatever the hell it is. Mm -hmm. so, so, so quick question. That was really well explained. So if I was the seller, I would say, well, how do I know you're going to keep on doing it? If you're, if you're taking ownership of one thing, but you're maintaining the other, how do, how do I know you're going to fulfill your promise over a long period of time? What if something happens? What do you answer to the to the seller in that situation? Because yeah. can I can I piggyback yeah. on that? Because I think yeah. the the two biggest question marks that I always see with this, I've been I've been dabbling in Pace Morby and Sub Two for a little bit now, trying to trying to wrap my head around everything. And I, I the most common questions that I see are how do I know that you're going to keep paying it? And then what happens if I want to buy a new house? Those are kind of the two biggest things. And so if you could touch on those, I think that's probably the question mark that a lot of listeners would be having right now. Yeah, exactly. And this is actually an aspect that's really important because now we're talking sales. I know we're all asking questions that we think are like technical aspects. Actually, the questions are more sales-based. And here's why. is because in order to do any kind of deal, there has to be a motivation. There has to be a desire to do something. Mm -hmm. I have no motivation to sell my house at all. I don't care what you pitch me. My price is $10 million. You're not paying me that. Great. We don't have a deal. Who cares? Yeah. So when we're getting into, see, remember, we, we're getting to the aspect of having a discussion regarding subject to as the transaction, probably because we can't agree on a cash price. Either the cash offer is too low and you simply don't like it, or the mortgage is so high that you, David, would have to come out of pocket to clear off the loan and you don't have that kind of money. Right. Jeff, I don't have 20 grand laying around to pay off the loan. Right. So that offer is now off the table. It doesn't work. Okay. I'm going to explain why. So when I'm pitching someone this idea, what I've started with is, listen, we've already tried one prescription for this. Here's another prescription that solves the issues that you're talking about and helps you get to the next step. Wouldn't that be nice if you didn't have to come out of pocket 20 grand? Wouldn't it be nice if your credit wasn't destroyed? Wouldn't it be nice if your credit was getting built over time? Now I'm throwing all these features out. And what I also have to realize as a salesman is I got to be careful to send out all these features but I got to really emphasize, what does David actually want? Because if he doesn't give a crap about credit score, for example, I've just tossed out a meaningless term. Right. Maybe all David cares about is I can't come out of pocket this kind of money. So as a salesman, I'm going to focus my attention there. Okay. So that's part one of this answer. Part two of the answer is, hey, the, the what ifs, the doomsday scenarios. Right. And so we do address all of this. Jeff, what if you stop paying? for example. Well, one, actually what this is, this it's not a question of, Jeff, are you going to be able to pay? It's, Jeff, can I trust you? That's the actual question that is being asked. And so that's how I respond. Say, listen, we have, this is a great question you're asking. And I'm going to use a third party story because I want to emphasize the trust aspect. David, this is a great question you're asking. I get asked this all the time on all the other deals we have already done. They asked me the exact same thing you did. 
And they, and you and them were right to ask me that, right? I'm going to completely validate that what they've just told me is perfectly reasonable. But I've already done this with a lot of other people. And a lot of other people got by this thing too. This is how third-party stories works in sales. The emphasis is on the third party, not on me. So notice how I talk about this. They asked me this question. I told them, we have a great history. We've never lost a property to this. But if for some bizarro reason we were late on payment, we have 30 days to cure it. Hey, I'm not going to lose the house because Bank of America screwed up on the transfer or whatever bank it was. It doesn't matter. Online system didn't work that day. Next day, I probably got this thing fixed. It's no big deal. But let's say 30 days goes by. Property is deeded back to you, basically. And you just sign up your realtor and you probably make more money anyway. Right. That's kind of the shorthand version of this. But it's all about these other people heard the response and they realized that it was a good deal and they realized the risk was very low. The risk isn't absent, but it's so low that it's not really a major concern. That's fantastic. Love that. So then, uh, yeah, moving on to the the second part of that question, uh, where we were, you know, talking about subject two, and uh, oh my gosh, I'm I'm totally spacing right now. What was the second part of my question, Yoni? What did I just have? I just thought of it and I lost it. The two major questions that people ask when it comes to how how this kind of works, my where you 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 completed my part one to my part two. My question was. How do you know you're going to fulfill the, the your promise of seeing the loan through? Oh, and then if I want to buy a new house, that's and what the I, next question was. Because wanna, then a lot of people say, well, I'm keeping this property in my name. The mortgage is in my name. So now what am I going to do if I want to go buy something? You know, I might need to you know, rent for a year or something, but then I meet the woman of my dreams and I want to go buy a house together and have the picket fence. How do I do that if I still have this property in my name? So then if, if you don't mind digging into that. Yeah. And... Again, all of this always goes back to motivation and where we're trying to get them to. And and there's also an aspect we get to be like, guys, you know, I'm, I'm making up the the artificial David who doesn't have the twenty thousand dollars. Like, David, look, I I get it. You want to be able to move into this house and take a new chapter, but we do have to make some difficult decisions right now because twenty thousand dollars out of your pocket right now just does not work. This method we're talking about can get you out of this. And what I'm asking you to do is make this very temporary sacrifice for 12 months. You'll be in an apartment while I'm making the payments on the mortgage that you don't have to worry about anymore. You'll never hear from me. Your credit score is going to go up and you're going to get out of this storm that we're currently in. Otherwise, otherwise, if you if you need to buy a house like tomorrow, then you need to write me a twenty thousand dollars check. But you told me that's not going to work, right? Right. Okay. I'm asking you. We need to make a tough choice. Twelve months, temporary sacrifice. Just go to a nice apartment. I'll help you find something. Twelve months from now, when the debt to income ratio is adjusted, because it shows someone else is paying the debt per month. That's the key. Someone else. So 12 months from now, call me first before you start house hunting. And I will help you through this process so that that DTI is adjusted. If you don't call me first though, David, we're going to have all kinds of problems, right? So this is where we em- you got to emphasize that pain. That That's where we call twisting the knife of pain. You have two choices. And I'm sorry, like you can't have everything you want. And this is a tough conversation. Mm -hmm. Write me the $20,000 check. You can absolutely get this DTI wiped out today. No problem. You can do it. Or hold out with me for 12 months and you can still get to where you want to go. Which, Which do you want? Yeah, it's fantastic. And and one of the one of the biggest things that I had heard in my uh, you know, kind of research with sub two as well is like you because correct me if I'm wrong through any of this, but the way that I understand the situation is that you bring in a second party, uh, like a it's an either an intermediary or what's the what's the term where I pay them and then they pay the mortgage. This is a note servicing company. 
servicing company. That's what it is. And then once the bank sees that there is a servicing company and Jeff is Jeff is paying the servicing company, servicing company is servicing that loan payment to the bank. Then the bank sees, oh, okay, this guy's legit. He's making his payments. Then that will make the bank comfortable with lowering or adjusting that debt to income ratio for the previous owner. So then they can go forward and they can, you know, purchase a house in the future. And so just wanted to uh, throw that little nugget in there as well for people, but it's, it's fantastic. It's a great tool that people can use for uh really really tough situations yeah just 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 to be very very specific and that, that was basically cor- the correct answer but just to be specific it's yeah, it's yeah. the underwriter of the new mortgage that needs to see basically a, this letter that says mm-hmm. hey this mortgage in this person's name is being paid by someone else and has been consistently for 12 months mm-hmm. therefore this particular DTI should not be applicable. But it's ultimately up to the underwriter to say, yeah, that makes sense and I'm good with that or no, I don't care. And that's that's actually uh, a relatively good thing because I mean different banks have different underwriters and so if you find your bank that you've been working with for you know x amount of time that you know you you like but then for whatever reason that underwriter for that loan decides that they don't like it for whatever reason you could you know then go shop around to other banks or go to Jeff like you're supposed to call him in twelve months and say hey Jeff do you have a bank that you like that is used to doing what you're doing and then Jeff's going to say yes absolutely call up so and so he's over at the bank he's the loan officer that I typically deal with and then you can move right through that process correct that's fantastic i think think the the thing that's sticking out to me is there we basically just gave a sub two creative finance 101 class mini class so for people i know friends of mine that i grew up with that are not researching sub two like david that are not as heavily involved and experienced as you jeff that they say oh i gotta save money to buy real estate so for those listening this is basically you should rewatch this clip with Jeff over and over to understand the different cogs in the wheel of how you can get a property potentially with very little down and actually doing the seller a big favor, which is I think what Jeff was trying to articulate is you're helping them with their credit. You're helping them with a variety of different things. Um, so just for the listeners, that's why this old piece was important and to listen to do it several times. Um, I want to transition to a new bucket uh, um, that that I think, Jeff, you're going to have a lot to talk about, which is land. I know you're very passionate about land. Tell us a little bit about why, you know, you t- told, you know, you went from oil and gas, you went into, you know, you traveled the world, you went into fourplexes, multifamily, sub two. Now you're into land. Why is land something that has piqued your curiosity at this level? Because it must be special if at this level of your experience, you're going so hard in it. So tell the audience a little bit of how you're viewing it, um, what you see the next year like for you and how how maybe we can help and they can help. Yeah. So the clickbait answer to this question is the amount of money you can make per deal is ungodly. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. I'm, Please tell me more. <laughs> right. And th- the reason I say that is and, and I'm, I'm going to explain why the particular type of land that's kind of at our core is is big parcels for new development. Like we're going to take 200 acres and we're going to park 800 houses out there, like a neighborhood, like that kind of deal. Okay, and when you basically are contracting something like that and moving it into a developer and home builder, the returns are ungodly. Like you wouldn't believe me if I told you. Okay. Um, However, everybody who's going like, oh my God, what is this about? This is a two-edged sword though. Okay. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying like you you can't do it. Like, do not hear me say this is impossible. Like only me, Jeff almighty can, can do this thing. What I would just say is like, it is, the returns are great. It is also incredibly hard. You have to find the right site. You have to research the zoning. You have to find the utilities, which is always a pain. You have to under truly underwrite this. There are no comps for something like this. It doesn't work that way. Then you have to work with the developer home builder, like getting their pricing. That can be frustrating. And not only that, these contracts from start to finish, they can go anywhere from 6, 8, 12, 24 months from the time you contract to the time you close. Now, look, 
I think most of us here are willing to wait 12 months to make a million dollars. I think all of us here. The point I'm trying to make is this is a long-term thing. The contracts are very complicated. I'm constantly negotiating with attorneys and doing red lines and all this, which I did in my oil and gas days. So I had a little bit of a head start on dealing with this, but it is it is very uh it's it's very complex, which means there's not quite as much competition. You don't have fifty thousand people calling on the same land people over and over again. So it is this niche market that is very difficult to to handle. And because I come from my oil and gas days of very large projects and complexities, um, th this had a particular appeal to me to do. And I'll I'll tell you how I got this ball rolling in the first place. But that's why I've decided to attack that. Whereas with with houses and stuff, I just felt like I was constantly haggling over it. And like I'm I'm haggling with somebody over on whether or not the kitchen needs five thousand or ten thousand dollars. Oh no, you know, I could replace a floor for like fourteen dollars at Home Depot. I was like, yeah, for a square foot. No, the whole thing. And it's just it just wears after a while. So constantly trying to do that. The Houston market is obviously pretty tough to deal with. And if you didn't have one of these premium hedge fund buyers, like you were just out. And I didn't, I didn't have one of those guys who was buying it like 95 cents on the dollar. And those guys who did other, they were just crushing it. They, they couldn't, they couldn't lose. Right. And I didn't have that. So anyway, so that is kind of the, that is the very shorthand version of why I'm targeting, why the core is land development and kind of why I walked away from single family houses and, and wholesaling and flipping as the core business. And so whenever you're discussing land, this isn't like I'm buying rural, uh, you know, farm ground out in the Midwest or something like that. Like the main, the main uh, objective and the main motive behind this is that you have a, a, a metropolitan area such as Houston to where you're finding ground that's, you know, I'm assuming on the outskirts or maybe within the city that you see that a lot of people look at and they're like, oh, well, that would be cool, but it's not zoned for anything. And so then you and your team go in there, you find this piece of property and you, you know, work through trying, do you get it rezoned or how does that kind of work? Like what's, what's the step you find a, a, a piece of property how do you find it then what's the next steps after that right so this is this is where even the contracts and the exits can get a little creative the key at the very beginning is obviously to price it correctly and underwrite it as we've discussed the second key of this whole thing is drafting the contract correctly because remember when you wholesale something you're not selling a property right you're selling the contract you've created so if i'm going to work with one of these big nationals, and you'd know all the names if I listed them, I could come to them with a piece of land for 30 cents on the dollar. And if the contract's not correct, they're not touching it. They don't give a crap what the price is. The contract has to actually be created correctly so they can execute it. Right. So that's a big component right off the bat. I have to contract it correctly with all the terms and conditions, not payment terms, but terms of the actual document. And I'm really emphasizing this because I don't want people just locking stuff up on tracks and just garbage contracts. They're like, why didn't it work? That's why. So, so let's say I get this thing contracted. There are multiple phases where I could participate, put in my own money, or where I could exit. So I could contract it and I could work through the zoning appro approval process. I could hire engineers to draw up what the neighborhood would look like and then sell the land plus the engineering package, all in a nice little bow and give it to a developer and off they go. I could do that. And I would make a lot of money because I'd added value to it. It's like I bought a Mustang. I'm Shelby. I bought a Mustang. I put a supercharger on it and sent that. Right? That's what this is. Okay. Or I can contract. There's a site. I just got the contract last night. We're going to contract it with the right terms. And the developer is going to put in basically all the money earnest engineering, because it's a very complicated, it's a multifamily and commercial build. And I just don't have enough familiarity to execute that kind of rezoning and approval. Like I, I just don't have that. So he's going to do that. And I'll still make a nice chunk of money, six digits on the back end of it. And that'll, that'll take six months for him to take it down. Probably eight if I'm being realistic, but whatever. So there's different things I can do. 
or on another property we're doing, contracted it, we're going to split some of the engineering fees up front to the tune of like $100,000. So it's not small. I'll get reimbursed at closing, plus I'll take six digits and then get an equity stake in the overall development project. And then as the lots get sold off to the house builders, we we will eventually get paid out. And that should generate a very high clip of money too. Very interesting. So the, yeah, there's there's a, a like a million different ways that you can, you know, skin that cat for better better uh, or lack of better term. Um that's very interesting. So for somebody that was even thinking about getting in, into this type of uh you know arena, it sounds like you need to be very well versed with documentation. You need to be able to have a good amount of reserves. Like this doesn't sound like this is something that, you know, a, a newbie should be jumping into. It sounds like this is something that you need to have at least a little bit of sophistication, have a chunk of reserves in the back to be able to pay for, because this sounds like this is a, a bit of a cash intensive upfront type of a thing that can pay off big time in the background. Am I, am I correct on that? Or is that uh yeah. I mean, w- the way I look at this is I'm in the stage right now of gathering up these projects and creating a pipeline truly for the long haul. And I'm still in this phase of gathering contracts. So I've I've monetized about four different development sites, not quite with that model we just discussed, but four other development transactions, which I'm going to talk about so you can see how this got started. And then over time, like this is going to be my core business. That's at the middle. Like this is this is where you're going up to the plate and you're swinging for the fences for grand slams. But you can't swing that every single time a pitch comes in. So in addition to that, we're also creating a second business line, if you will, which is infill vacant lots. Right. So you, you're driving through a neighborhood and you're like, what the hell? Like there's no house sitting on this one lot. Like that's what we're going to bring to market and just assign that out. So. Uh, we squad up with another guy named Matt Rogers. We actually locked up about four different contracts over the past couple of months. We're going to hopefully do a couple more here soon as we're ramping up and they all monetize like 15 grand pop. There's another one we're doing. Hopefully it'll do about 40 grand. So th- there's opportunities in different areas of land. So when you say the the lot, are they, are, are you leasing them? the 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 lot and they're putting something on it is that is that that transaction is that what the way the transaction looks like so typically typically with 90 percent of your infill lots are just going to be cash sales to a house builder right bob and brothers house builders i want the lot i'm going to put up a house and i'm going to sell it on the market some people will buy the lot and they'll put up a duplex but whatever it is, they're going to have an you know, acquisition and construction loan to do that and then probably refinance it out if, if they create it into a duplex rental, for example. So creative on a lot for that is extremely uncommon. You might be now I was actually visiting a guy with a 20 unit portfolio yesterday t- between duplexes and fourplexes. We're trying to work that. Again, that's not my focus. It just happens to be something I've, I've looked into and I have the experience I can work on it. I'm just not targeting it. And he was, he's, he's also building a mobile home park community, developing that. He already took it through the process and now they've, they've broken ground. They're putting in the stubs, utility, all the things. And in this scenario, he is leasing the lots to the manufactured house buyers so they bring their mobile home, they park it there, but they're leasing the lot at the end of the day. They never actually bought it. Okay. So that might happen. You can also lease land that is commercial. You can do a triple net lease and lease the dirt. That's cool. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. That's that's, that's cool. the dream right there, man. <laughs> it It is the dream, right? For anybody who doesn't know what a triple net lease is, you should look it up because it's freaking amazing. Uh, you won't see this on a house typically, but a triple net lease, basically imagine this, like this is almost the epitome of passive income. Your tenant has to pay all the maintenance. They have to pay the insurance and they got to pay all the taxes and they got to just generally keep up with it and write checks. And you don't hear a word from them. I think a lot of people right now is like, holy crap, can I do a triple net lease on my house? Yeah, probably not. This is really just commercial stuff. 
And and usually what happens is a triple net lease is on the building, but maybe you got to do maintenance on the parking lot or something like that. It's not, it's not, it's typically not ultimately you're truly out of it, but that is the essence of it is that the tenant has to maintain the structure. That's what I was just going to say. That's very interesting because you were saying that, you know, there's people that do triple net leases literally just on the dirt. And so I have some friends that they're doing some triple net leasing on some commercial properties uh, and you know, they, it's, it's obviously still very, very passive for them. The, the tenant is responsible for upkeep and all this other stuff. It's nothing, nothing like a uh, residential landlord to where like pipe busts or something like that, you're responsible for it. You might hear from your, you know, triple net tenant maybe, but for the most part, you're probably not going to hear about any sort of maintenance issues. They take care of them because that's their responsibility. But if you literally have dirt and you're leasing out dirt to somebody, there's very few things that can go wrong. And so, yeah, like you said, that sounds like that is the the triple net golden goose out there. And so that's very interesting. And you said that's something that you guys are are trying to move towards. Yeah, so there's um so that can that's kind of like triple net lease on commercial ground. Like I haven't found that yet. I know it's out there yeah. somewhere and I will find it someday. And when I when I do, <laughs> I will come back on your podcast and tell you where I found it and how to do it. Um but but we also have to consider about like there is no multifamily builder out there who's going to agree to a lease on on the dirt. Mm-hmm. Like they're just not going to do it. They're going to take title and they're going to own it. Okay. There may be some commercial, uh, you know, retailers out there and maybe they're on board and Hey, I'll park the, the CVS pharmacy. Yeah. We're, we're happy to lease it. We don't care. Maybe, maybe not like I have an approach. I don't even know, but I know this is, potential is out there. Now, the other thing you were asking about rural land, this is something we're starting to explore. We haven't quite gotten there. So we I basically have discussed two product lines, big land development, and then infill lots which we're starting because why? Because the land development takes so long. So we need to get cash flow going. You need both at once. The third type of thing that we're starting to explore is more rural land where we can subdivide it into larger lots, like 10, 15, 20 acre lots. And then you sell them on notes. So we're, uh, we're, and who, we're who's getting, the end buyer for that. Those would be occupants. Okay. So you, you find a, so me, I'm, I'm from the Midwest, Indiana. And so it's nothing but farm ground out there. And so, um, but I'm in Fort Wayne, Indiana area. So the, the way that I'm understanding this, I, somebody, you know, somebody passes away and they have a 200 acre farm. And so then you would purchase that 200 acre farm and you could divide it into 20, 10 acre you know, nice big homesteads for people. And then you're, you know, basically subdividing it. And so really what you're doing is you're, you're selling the, the potential and the rezoned property is, is how you're, you're making it. Or did you say that you were leasing it? I apologize. No, we, we would be selling it on, okay. on seller financing is typically how that's done. Um, and oh, I'm still yeah, doing yeah. Okay, a, selling it on the note. Yeah. I, I'm still doing a lot of research on this. So I haven't even created a good buy box for this that I'm very early in this process again I'll as I learn more I'll I'll come back but in in this like the I, the ideal is you don't have to rezone it either mm. like figure out what the and this is where again like it gets complicated because a lot of people think think about it this way if anybody's really interested in this watching this podcast as soon as this thing's over or pause this right now, go on the MLS and pull up big land listings. Like go find something that's like a hundred acres, $10 million. It doesn't matter. Go find something. 90% of them, I guarantee you say something like this. Great piece of land, good location, near a bunch of cool stuff. Use your imagination, build whatever you want. (laughs) And I cannot come up with a lazier description to sell something than this it's super lazy and this is not how developers think all right because the truth is you can't just buy something and take the bulldozers out there and start ripping it apart you can't i don't care what anybody says i don't care what the realtor says you cannot do this all right yeah you have to get the jurisdiction whether it's the county or the city to bless what you're about to do yep okay so anyway, the moral of the story here is that whatever it is, whether it's the lot, whether it's the big land, whether it's the rural land, I have to do a lot of research in the jurisdiction development code and find out 
what do they want this land to be utilized for? Do they allow rezoning in this area? What density? Like, oh, there's tons of questions that have to be answered before you go and start building a bunch of stuff. I'll I'll add to what you're saying. I'm just nodding my head and smiling because I bought 21 acres of land in Smoky Mountains. And there's a lot. It's a fairly chill place, I would say. But, you know, you're dealing with things like critical slope when it when they don't advertise it, that it has critical slope. And then you find out when you paid for a very expensive environmental report that you may not be able to do much with the land. You thought, oh, hey, it's uh, 50 acres. I'll slap all kinds of things or things like you'll find out I wanted to build a container home. And then the county told me they don't allow container homes because it doesn't have a very specific thing called the Tennessee modular home sticker, which the container homes don't fit in that mold. So as you're nodding your head, you're probably talking about things a lot more sophisticated and higher level than what I'm referring to. But in my little land, I would say I've found what you're saying to be true. And I can already see how your oil and gas um, contract work lends itself well to read these 85 page built in 1990 websites by county so you can understand what the hell you're allowed and not allowed to do. And yes, the agents are definitely lazy in this market because I got led astray many a time. Yeah. And I kind of tell people like we, we have something in sub two called daily dial, which is kind of like every day there's different closers who come on and just help coach people get better on the phone. And one of the things I've been telling people is, guys, remember, the sellers do not care about you. They do not care. Okay. They care about their own problems and what they're trying to do. So like that realtor listing, they don't care about you as a buyer. Their duty's not to you. They don't give a crap. That's why they write on there, do your own due diligence. It's kind of like their way of sneaking out. But that's why I can work with the developers so that they don't have to muck through this garbage. I can come to them and say, hey, listen, I found this land. It would be zoned for this if we did it. It would create this many lots. I know where the utilities are. I know what the jurisdiction wants. I've done all this research. Do you want to come party with me? And oh, by the way, we can get it for a good price and at the terms where we can actually execute it. And they go, oh my God, please bring me more of this. Because in the meantime, they've got, you know, 10 different contractors that are in their ear talking to them and they're trying to worry about developments and all this other stuff. It's essentially, um, you know, you're, you're on the verge of just like, you know, coming up with this and finding the potential for something and then wholesaling it to them, just like somebody would find a crappy house and they wholesale it to a flipper. The flipper is super busy. They don't want to have to go out and find these deals. That's why they're willing to pay a wholesale. I'm not saying that you're wholesaling these deals to these developers, but kind of the same thought process of like, you're finding something that many other people aren't seeing the potential in. You are then making sure that the potential is there. And then you're bringing it to somebody who would appreciate that potential and pay you kindly for it. Yeah. And, and that's the way we try and market ourselves. And that's what these developers even tell me. They're like, man, this is great. Like I got, it's like, I got somebody else on my staff that I don't have to pay. And you guys go bring things to market. Like that's the whole off market that you like, that's your value as a wholesale. You are bringing something to market. That's why you were getting paid that you found this thing. And so when buyers get bent out of shape of like, oh man, you're getting, you're cutting a fat hog on this. Like, yeah, but you didn't have to sort through the 200 other leads garbage that I had to to find this thing. And if the numbers work for you, you should be thrilled to pay me as much as you possibly can so that I keep bringing you more of these things and I keep sorting through the trash rather than you. Right? The developers want to go build houses. They don't have to go search through. They search through crap constantly. But if somebody brings them something like, I've done the research and this is a good one, they're like, yes, finally. Yeah, they're 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 salivating so that they can start building again, doing what they doing the the world that they know how to do, and then they they're more than happy to let somebody else take their time, their energy to learn a new skill and bring something to them, so they don't have to worry about it, or like you said, pay somebody on their team that may or may not do a good job at it, and so they're happy to pay a premium to somebody that you know that is bringing them something that's going to bring them a ton of value. Um, all right. So we are getting close to closing out here. And so we wanted to, uh, we, we have some questions that we'd like to ask people throughout uh, every podcast that we go through. Um, they're just kind of some background questions about you and some daily habit things. And so one of the first questions we'd like to ask people is what's a book that you have read in the past that's made a big impact on your life? So uh, there's two books that come to mind. Compound Effect by Darren Hardy. Fantastic. Um 
basically it it just it just talks about how you do the right things every day and eventually over time it's built out into something massive right? it's kind of like how you know people say you know you overestimate what you can do in one year but you underestimate what you can do in five it's kind of the epitome of that great book uh the other one that has really helped me a lot is spin selling by neil rackham spin selling is a sales book obviously but it gets very much it, it's a very much a re- it's like a giant research paper that focused in on why certain sales questions worked and why certain questions don't work when to use them and what they are like man i was asking this people about you know the age of the roof and the age of the water heater and you know how old the kitchen appliance were and all of a sudden they got pissed off at me like <laughs> yeah cuz these are terrible questions it's like going to a doctor's office like getting a doctor on the phone and be like Hey, this is Dr. So-and-so. Um, you know, before we get started, how many legs do you have? How many fingers do you have? How many eyeballs do you have? Hey, Doc, listen, I got a freaking broken leg. Can we start there? <laughs> right. So, like, if any if anybody watching this, if you experience this, like, man, I keep asking. It's like, yeah, because you're not asking about what the issues are that they're having with the house and why they want to sell. And this is what spin selling contemplates. So it's it's making sure that people are are asking the right questions is essentially what I'm what I'm gleaning from this, not just going through a checklist. Is that fair? Or yes, it's it's learning how to craft good feedback questions, and then there's there's four types of questions in spend selling. That's what the acronym is: situation, problem, implication, and need payoff. Need payoff being because Neil Rackham couldn't think of a better word to use for that one. And basically it it says, these are the types of questions and here's when to use them because you can't just throw them around, but then it helps you come up and craft your own question. So it's not real estate focused, it's generally focused, but you can deploy it anywhere. And it's really been helpful. Very interesting. I'm starting to try and get my my negotiation skills up a little bit because that's not my background, not my forte whatsoever. So I might need to look into that one. It it sounds a little bit like, it's active listening. Also, people are not active listening. They're so they're so tunnel vision on on what they think they need to get that they're not they're not listening. We have two year two years on one mouth. Um. So I I have another question, another personal question, Jeff. So you're a very unique guy. You've lived all over the world. You've done oil and gas. You learned you learned complex contracts. You've been in Saudi Arabia. You've traveled around the EU. You're in Texas. You've done basically all kinds of real estate at this point. You're and now you're at the most sophisticated apex of real estate, which is sort of this land development and, and a lot of different things inside of it. What's do you think is a daily habit or something that you do consistently? You talked just now from the book that's something that compounds over five years. So what's what's a habit that you think makes that if he's gotten you to this point, because we all, you know, grew up with people that didn't make it to this point, right? You've, you've come a long way. Um, you've learned a lot and you're in a very unique position in, in the real estate world where you can, you can operate from a creative finance standpoint. And, and not a lot of people know how to do that and lead people and lead people and teach them how to close. What, what's your habit that you think is your superpower? Ooh, that is a good question. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you a couple habits that I do and a couple habits that I want to do better. So the habit number one that I wish I did better was read consistently every day. Like when I was reading Compound Effect, I literally asked myself, why have I not been doing this more? Like I was just sitting there like incredulous. Like, I can't believe I have left this on the table for so long. So that's the thing I want to improve. The other thing that I will do consistently is... Um, you know, I, I look at our CRM that we created. Um, we don't use Podi or anything. We actually made our own in a tool called Notion. Talk about that another day. And I'm constantly giving feedback to my VAs because VAs are high maintenance, whether you like it or not. So I'm constantly giving them feedback on how to get better because if they get better, my job gets easier, right? They do more functions. And I catalog the processes a lot. I'm constantly tweaking things, trying to make little adjustments to make it better. If I spend four hours explaining something, it's going to save me dividends over time. So that's I think that I'm really good at that. Um, the, the other thing that I want to do a little more consistently is getting on the phones with, with agents and networking and kind of broadcasting what I'm doing because it is kind of a niche market. I'm 
still figuring out how I can make a number of calls on that item specifically. So that's been a little challenging. The other, and then here's the last, the thing I am doing consistently also with our infill lots is I am consistently making offers every day. Nice. Like I'm cranking out. I mean, they, they can tell me to go to hell and buzz off. It's way too low. That's fine. Got to take shots on goal and then utilize that feedback to say, okay, are we in the market? Are we out of the market? What do we need? So I'm constantly thinking about how do we improve? And then who do I call to help me figure it out? That's fantastic. So that that actually ties in really, really well with our third question that we have. So our third question is, what's the biggest challenge that you're facing in your business right now? And how could our listeners help you out? Yeah. So um, it's funny. I was talking to somebody about this the other day because he was talking about, hey, you know, have you ever thought of doing like a JV business where people just send you leads and you close them? And I was like, yeah, and it sucks. <laughs> he goes, why? <laughs> like, why? Why is that? I said, well, a lot of the problem is there's a lot of people, they, they get into this and they're doing, they're doing the best they can and they don't know what a qualified lead is. And so I've had leads submitted to me from their VAs and the VA literally wrote seller, not interested, but open to hear an offer. <laughs> right. So there's, there's no motivation there at all. Right. So I think this is really a me, a me thing where I need to do a better job. And actually, Matt Rogers and I in sub two are going to create a Zoom series talking about different aspects of land, where I need to do a better job explaining this is exactly the type of what constitutes a quality lead. Because if I don't do that, then obviously, I can't expect anybody else to figure this out. So, you know, I, I think, um, anyway, just to help anybody out there who's listening, like if you want, if you wanted to JV with a closer, whether it's me or anybody else, one of the best things you can do is reach out to them. And, like, don't try and get them on a call. Don't tell them you want to pick their brain. Just, it's just irritating. Just say, hey, listen, I met. Here's where I met you. We met on Daily Die. We met on the Zoom. Wherever the hell it was. I understand that you are looking to do X, Y, and Z. I think I understand that this is exactly what you were looking for. Jeff is looking for vacant lots in Houston right now. He's eventually going to hit. Dallas and, and San Antonio. Like that's my plan for the year. Infill vacant lots. It's probably the best thing you can do. And also big land development. Like I see the neighborhoods happening around here. This appears to be a good site. This guy is telling me it's happening. It seems like it's open. Right. So Jeff, this is what I understand you're looking for. I'd love to be able to submit your deals and work with you. Is there anything here I'm missing? So I qualify these leads better for you. That gets my attention. I get plenty of tax people. Jeff, can I pick your brain about land? I'm sorry, dude. Like I'm, I'm running it. I wish there were 36 hours in the day I could do this. I genuinely do, but I have to. I have to focus on keeping keeping the money flowing. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, is there is there? I mean, like um, you know, like the one percent rule when you're looking at a rental or something like that. You know, just like quick little like rules of thumb. Is there any sort of like a quick sniff test that there is for land? Other than, I mean, it probably needs to be nearby, but I guess not necessarily because you were saying that you're looking into some more rural things. But um, what's something like a, a tangible thing that you know um, listeners could take away? Like, oh, if I'm gonna go even like entertain the idea of looking at land. What's something that's like a, an absolute hell no, obviously not going to work or something that's like, maybe this is worth looking into. Yeah. So let's talk about a couple, couple different things. So on development grade land, one of the first things I look for is what kind of floodplains is it in? Because you have 500 year floodplains, you have 100 year floodplain, and then you have registered floodway. If it's covered in registered floodway, don't even bother. Just cast that one out. It's not worth it. Okay. If it's um, what you if if you if you went on Google Maps right now and looked at the east side of Dallas, you'll see the area is exploding with growth. It's super cool. What you'll also notice is all those developments are like 100, 150 acres. They're huge. So if you got a lead and he's like, I got five acres out here, we're not getting anybody's attention for that. So I say it's like it has to be kind of in kind and relatively close to everything. So if it's like two miles out. I'm not pulling two miles of sewer line out there. So mm -hmm. there, there's a proximity floodway is usually a good sniff test to do. Um, as far as the pricing, that's why I was saying there's really no comps for this. You truly have to underwrite the project and it, it can be kind of hard to do. 
um, as far as infill lots are concerned, you you can use comps. There are comps for lots. You can absolutely do that, at least to give you an indicator as to where this should land. And ultimately, what you really want to do is have your builders kind of locked and loaded, and you've already asked them where they need to be at. Because people buy lots for all kinds of different reasons. So if you have, if you know, and our model is we're trying to wholesale lots to builders. So I want to know what they want, the width of lots, the, all, all that kind of, kind of stuff. The rule of thumb for infill lots is they should land around 20% of whatever the new builds are in the area. So if they're $500,000 houses, in theory, 20% is like a hundred grand. But still look at the comps. You may say, hey, Maybe a hundred thousand works, but nobody's buying this for more than eighty grand. Cool, just ballpark. Interesting. It's very good to know. Okay, uh, well, Jeff, this has been absolutely phenomenal. I'm pretty sure we need to have like an entire episode just for sub two, an entire episode just for land, because I feel like we we just scratched the surface of everything. This is fantastic, but I think we need to be respectful of your time, Yoni. Do you want to get us to the last question? Yeah, and an entire episode on infill lots, which I know nothing about except yeah. for what we talked about today. Yeah, um, the, this, usually the way we close it out is, um, Jeff, if where is where can people reach you? Number one, if there's a few different ways, social media, website, email, and as well as if there's one thing you want the listeners to take away from today's podcast, what would it be? Yeah, so the, the best way to find me is Instagram. Um, I am trying to build that up. I mean, it, it is the business page nowadays. It is your business card. It just is what it is. So that is Jeff, J-E-F-F dot R dot W dot Smith. And yes, I hope to change that someday because it does sound ridiculous. <laughs> but it's I have, I have two middle names, my two grandfathers who are badasses. Um, and then kind of my my parting words, if you will. You know, somebody told me a lot. So so one, hopefully y'all caught earlier, is sales negotiating beyond the phone. This is absolutely something you can learn. I told you I was literally shaking when I first started. And now in sub two, I'm I am regarded as one of the guys who's really damn good on the phones. And that's very honoring. The the other thing that I would kind of tell everybody is, you know, I got a piece of advice one time. It was like fail forward and fail often. And I didn't quite contemplate what it meant until I heard this story recently. And it really made a lot of sense. You ever heard the story about, I don't know, it was photography or pottery. That basically, this professor had a class and he's like, I'm going to split this class in two. And this class, you guys, your grade is going to be based on making the most amount of pots possible. Like clay pots. Go nuts, make a thousand of them. And that your grade is going to be based on that. In this side of the class, your grade is going to be based on the best quality pot you can do. This thing better be darn near gold gilded by the time you're done with it. It should be fantastic. You guys heard the story? Have not. Okay. So there's the two classes. The, the the same class, two sections. Off they go. They work the semester. And this group, they're just cranking through pots. And they're cr- it's just all over the place. They're just po- all over the place. And this group over here, they're, they're tearing through books. They're researching. How do I make pots? What's the best tools? What's the best materials? All the rest of this. And they're just research. And they, they're making a couple, but, you know, but they're heavy research. And they come to the end. And 90% of the best pots came from the guys who were just cranking them out. Why? Why is that? Well, it's because every time they tried, every time they did whatever, they learned a little bit. The experience was teaching them way faster than reading it out of a book. Right? And that's something I kind of stumbled on when I first got started. I'm the engineer brain. I don't want to make 12 bridges and like, oh, shit, 10 of them fell down. I won't do that again. <laughs> like, no, you measure twice, cut once, right? That This is the way a lot of kind of that, that mentality works. But over here in, in the real estate world, they tell you, like, put it under contract and test the waters and figure it out. And be accepting that you may lose a few hundred bucks in earnest money along the way. That's just the price of doing business. And I wish I had kind of accepted that truth at the beginning. Like if you lose a few hundred bucks, yeah, that sucks. That's not great. But every time we contracted something, every single time we contracted something and push it out there to get feedback. Oh my gosh, we learned so much. 
like the first time I contracted my my big development deal, it was it was a deal that fell apart, unfortunately, but it was in Florida. I was doing the best I could with the knowledge I had, contracted, what the hell? We got so much good feedback on how this really works and what they were willing to pay for. We would have never have known if we hadn't just pushed ahead and accepted, we may lose a couple grand on this. We ended up losing around $14,000 on it because of engineering costs. And then the market took a crap and just changed everything. But neither here nor there, that was money well spent because we learned so much from that experience. So whoever's out there, you're chasing houses, you're chasing whatever, put it under contract, except you may lose a couple hundred bucks on the EMD, get over it, and then squat up with people around you, dispo houses, people who are doing deals, and, and see what kind of reaction you get. And you'll learn so much more and do that many, many times, build up 10,000 pots because then you'll, you'll be the one who's having the better pot than the guys who are sitting around studying how to create pots. Awesome. Jeff, that was absolutely phenomenal. Anybody that's, you know, on the, you know, go to the bathroom or get off the pot type of situation, go rewind that, listen to that again, because that was absolutely fantastic. It's so true. Fail fail early, fail often. It's so true. Getting in there, getting your hands dirty experience is hands down the best, best teacher. So Jeff, thank you so much. This has been a wealth of knowledge. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, Yoni, do you have anything else before we get you out of here? I think the listeners should listen to this a few times, not a one-time listen thing. This is a three to six time listen. So you really <laughs> internalize some of the, uh, some of the unique lessons because you can go zero to 10 with Jeff's lessons. So, you know, and more. So yeah. Thank you so much, Jeff. A plus episode. We really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was super fun and. We'll we'll have to do this again sometime. We'll we'll break it down into something a little more bite sized instead of let's just cover everything on the planet. <laughs> yeah. All right. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Jeff. This cool. was another episode of the Fetch It podcast, and we will see you again next week.